all of history. And if you read Matthew's gospel in the New Testament, which uh, we just read from, uh, if you read it closely, what you'll find is that there is this growing drama that is building, uh, is built right into the story. And it's growing as the drama as the drama unfolds. And the reoccurring theme, it seems to me, uh, might best be described as a kind of building opposition to Jesus and his teaching uh, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, Jesus' compelling invitation uh, that, that his, his hearers, uh, that you this morning, that we would follow him. Uh, that, and really that means to make him central in, in your life. Now what's remarkable about this story in Matthew 12, which we just read from, is actually its conclusion, I think, uh, which you can read again in verse 12, uh, or verse 14, rather, of Matthew 12. But the Pharisees went out, and they conspired against him how to destroy him. Uh, see, this, this episode is the first in which, as I just mentioned, this growing opposition to Jesus becomes so visceral, so intense, that the religious class of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, feel the need to destroy Jesus. They want him dead at all costs. And the question for us this morning is why? why what, what possibly in the world provoked that kind of reaction? See, I think uh, some of us come to a story like this in the Gospels, um, and if you're here today and, uh, and you, you may identify yourself as as perhaps secular or agnostic, or maybe you would best define yourself as spiritual but not religious. Uh, you, you, you might look at a story like this and think to yourself, this is just another reason why uh, religion is dangerous, um, because it's destructive, because of the Pharisees' reaction, uh, because of their, their self-righteousness, because of this lack of compassion, particularly to the needs of hunger, and healing that are both identified in this passage. And so you want to uh, perhaps distance yourself from anything that even remotely resembles this kind of capital R religion. Uh, and just as an aside, I, I get that, and it's, sad, it's a sad fact, um, both as someone like myself who follows Jesus and somebody who represents him in the, in the role and vocation that I have, that in the modern world especially, uh, uh, Christianity in the West in particular, tends to have this, uh, this reputation for being, uh, to uh, reflecting more the smug self-righteousness of the Pharisees than the gracious ethos of its founder, Jesus. But for others of us here today, uh, maybe particularly if you identify as a Christian, if you, uh, if you are a follower of Jesus, uh, I think the dominant question that you may be asking, maybe if, if you even consider yourself a Presbyterian uh, like myself, is what's the deal with the Sabbath? You want to know uh, exactly what this Sabbath thing is. And you, want, you're, you may be asking yourself this morning, tell me, preacher, uh, what can we do? What can't we do on the Sabbath? Is this still applicable? I thought this was something in the Old Testament. Does this, does this have anything to do with my life here and now? I'll get there. But at the heart of this passage is, I think, a contrast between two ways of living. Two ways of living. I'm going to call the first performanceism. I may have just made that word up, but I, I'm, go with me. Uh, 
the first way of living your life is I'm going to call performance-ism. And the second way I'm going to call is the Jesus way. What I mean by performance-ism is this. It's the assumption that there is no distinction between what we do and who we are. In performance-ism, there's no distinction between what we do and who we are. So what makes you lovable? What makes your life worth living? Uh, what makes you enough is your performance of A, B, and C. Performanceism is the idea that if you are not doing enough, if you're not doing enough, or you're not doing it well enough, then you are not enough. Let me give you a real, a real life and heartbreaking example. In 2014, the University of Pennsylvania made national headlines. Why? Uh, over a 12-month period, the campus witnessed six student suicides. And as a response, the administration formed a task force to study mental health on campus. And in the final report, the team cited something called, which they referred to, called PenFace. That's P-E-N-N, PenFace, which they defined as the practice of acting happy and self-assured even when sad or stressed. The committee said that PenFace derives from the perception that one has to be perfect in every academic, co-curricular, and social endeavor. I wonder how many of us this morning are suffering from that reality, pen face. That's what it's called at the University of Pennsylvania, but it could be called hundreds of different things in the worlds in which we inhabit. Listen, I, wanna, I want you to see that this story isn't about a little squabble over arcane religious dogma like the Sabbath or the Old Testament law. It's actually about matters of life and death. At least it was for Jesus, as the last verse of the passage indicates. So let's look at these two contrasting ways of living in Matthew 12. First, I want to point out the problems of performanceism, and then I want to look at the good news of the Jesus way. So let's look at the problems of performanceism. The first problem of performanceism is it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Look, the purpose of the Sabbath, which the Pharisees completely missed apparently, was that the Sabbath was a gift to be received. It was a gift to be received, and they treated it as if it was a ladder to climb. If you know the Old Testament story, you're familiar with the, 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 the drama, uh, the story of the, the nation of, of Israel, the Hebrews. They were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and all that they knew for 400 years was work, work, work. And when they were delivered, when they were rescued, God instituted the Sabbath to remind them, to remind us, that we are human beings and not human doings. See, Israel had slavery written into their bones after 400 years, and now God needed to institute something. He needed to give them a gift to internally free their minds and their hearts that had been yoked ultimately to what they did. So the Pharisees missed that. And the Sabbath was really, if you were here last week with us last week, uh, last week the Sabbath was the Old Testament way of God saying, like he did in Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. That was what the Sabbath was for. 
That was the purpose of the Sabbath. But the Pharisees missed that. And as a result, what they treated the Sabbath as was a means of status, was a means of scorekeeping, was a means of comparison with other people. That's why in verse 3, the thing that primarily concerns them is, look, Jesus, your disciples. They're measuring themselves against other people. And that's exhausting, as many of you know. It's also psychologically crippling. The man in in verses 9 through 14 who Jesus heals, uh, the the text describes him as having a withered, or uh, maybe a better uh, modern translation is a paralyzed hand. But this this way of living that I'm describing, performance-ism, actually leaves you with a paralyzed soul. What do I mean? Performance-ism... If you are bowing down to this God, if you are living your life according to performanceism, your self-view is bouncing between two poles. On the one hand, on the one hand, if you're doing well, if you're keeping up, if you're hitting your goals, you have swagger, you have confidence, you have self-esteem. But if you're not, if you're not doing well, you're not swaggering, you're sniveling. You're curling up into a little ball of insecurity and inadequacy. And that kind of life, that kind of way of doing life, is exhausting. It's psychologically, mentally, and emotionally exhausting. The second problem with performanceism is it's dehumanizing. The purpose of the the Sabbath that the Pharisees missed was that the day of rest, uh, this day that God had given to his people as a gift, Uh, This day of rest isn't merely about a a balance between work and and the rest of your life. Uh, It's not not necessarily about a balance, a rhythm that we're to keep, although it is. But fundamentally, I think it's about liberation from human need. If you were here during the call to confession, we read from Deuteronomy 5. And the reason that God gives the Sabbath in Deuteronomy 5 is to remind his people that they were once in slavery and now God has rescued them. So they're to observe rest and practice rest and also give rest to other people so that their status, so that society as a whole can be equitable, so that people can be treated fairly, so that people can be liberated and delivered from need. That was the purpose of the Sabbath. But performanceism, what the Pharisees are living their life by, what you and I often live our life by, makes us blind to human need. It makes us blind. We cannot see other people. See, there are two needs in this passage. The first is hunger, uh, the hunger of the disciples in the first several verses, and then the need for uh, the healing of this paralyzed man in his hand. The Pharisees ignore both. Why? Well, I think the answer is actually more radical than any of us could possibly think. Um, See, performanceism has to do with what the Bible calls righteousness. And I know that's a word that, to our modern ears, we associate it very quickly with self-righteous. And so we don't like to hear it. But listen to um, psychology and sociology professor uh, Jonathan Haidt, uh, who a number of years ago wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. And in The Righteous Mind... This, uh, this professor, this psychologist, uh, says that an obsession with righteousness, an obsession with righteousness, is the normal 
human condition. An obsession with righteousness is the normal human condition. And what he argues is that that actually is, it can be a really good thing. It's what that unique feature, uh, this obsession with righteousness, um, has allowed humanity as a whole and in groups in particular to form cooperative groups together like tribes and nations and societies uh, without the glue of family kinship. So the idea of righteousness, pursuing uh, something that is right, uh, being right, has allowed us as a society, as nations and tribes and groups, to come together and form collectives apart from kinship. But the problem comes is when our idea of righteousness differs from someone else's or when we perceive someone as standing in the way between our attainment of that righteousness, what we think of as good, the thing that makes us enough. You can see this immediately if you spend any amount of time on on social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter. Anytime there is uh, an ar- it doesn't matter what it is. It could be about politics. It could be about culture. It could be about food. It could be about TV. It doesn't matter. Uh, you observe this immediately when someone comes out and says something and everybody else, a digital mob, descends on them because they disagree. But that's not primarily what I'm talking about. I'm talking about uh, normal, mundane things like marriages that are, are, are collapsing. I'm talking about you losing your job. I'm talking about the child who won't speak to you anymore. See, the irony is that our search for enoughness, righteousness, is a universal human longing. And it's a need that can bind people together and at the same exact time, it can spark the drives that, that drive us to some of the most dehumanizing behavior. You see that online, you see that in our world, you see that in your normal everyday life. And the reason for that is this. When we stand in a place of trying to attain enoughness or righteousness, what the Bible calls righteousness, what we do is we constantly measure people's value and our own value and importance Uh, we constantly are measuring that. We're constantly judging that. We're evaluating. We're critiquing. And when we are wrapped up in that dynamic, it creates a distance. It creates a distinction between myself and the person who is standing in the way of me achieving righteousness or enoughness. It creates an us versus them. It creates an in-group and an out-group, which prevents you which prevents me from seeing people through the lens of compassion. Take it from T.S. Eliot, who in one of his plays writes this, half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them, or they do not see it, or they justify it, because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. That's what's going on here. The Pharisees are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves, and so they are blind to human need. So performancism, it's exhausting. It dehumanizes other people. And third, it's it's self-absorbed. It's narcissistic. The purpose of the Sabbath 
which the Pharisees missed, was to serve as a sign. It was to, it was to, it was to be a, a, a thing that the Israelites could look at and say, we have a special and unique relationship, a personal relationship with Yahweh, with the God who made heaven and earth. And Jesus makes this curious quotation in verse 7 of, of, of Matthew chapter 12. Look at that. He says, he's quoting from, uh, actually from one of the prophets, from Hosea. And he says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would, have, you would not have condemned the guiltless. What does that mean? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, mo- actually, most translations miss something. Most of our translations miss something. The, the word that Jesus used and the word that Hosea is using in the prophets is actually not the word for mercy. It's the Hebrew word hesed, which is actually closer to something like covenant love and loyalty. The implication there is that what Jesus is thinking about and what God intends through the Sabbath is he's more interested in a personal relationship with his people. And Israel, on the other hand, is more interested in doing all the right things for God. See, Yahweh, on the one hand, was more interested in Israel being with God. And Israel was more interested in doing things for God. Performancism. Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century English preacher, he tells a, a pretty well-known story uh, of, the, of a carrot and a horse. I'll, I'll, I'll quickly recount that for you. He said, once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in a land. One day there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to this king and said, my lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land to to you freely as a gift so you can garden it. uh, You can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this and he said, My, if that is what you get for a carrot, What if you gave the king something better? The next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low, and he said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, Thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed, so the king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. You were giving yourself the horse. See, God gave his people the Sabbath as a picture of his unique, special relationship with them to serve as a sign of his covenant love and loyalty to them. And they were to observe it to reciprocate that love. But what evolved over time was what happens in the heart of every single eighth grader that I know. Let me describe, let me, let me tell, tell you what I mean by that. We all have an inner eighth, grade, eighth grader in all of our hearts. What do I mean? Think about middle school. And those of you who are in middle school, you can probably relate to this, although you won't admit it. Every middle schooler 
is looking for not so much the love of another person. Think about all the teen, teen romances you've ever watched on TV or experienced. They're not looking for the love of another person, but the validation that they are lovable. So their attention is always focused on how well or badly they are doing every single time they're around a special someone because we want that person to validate us so we feel good about ourselves. So what do we do? We end up scanning their words and their movements for clues. We're trying to pick up signals about where we stand with them rather than listening to what they are trying to communicate to us. Some of you can relate, I'm sure. That's exactly how these Pharisees were responding to God. They were constantly thinking of how good, how well they were performing so that they could think well about themselves rather than listening to what God was saying to them through the Sabbath. And we all have that inner eighth grader in our hearts, all of us. That's why when I'm criticized, when people come to me with their disagreements, I'm either on the one hand furious or on the other hand devastated because I need a good image. I need to be lovable. I need to be worthy. I need to be enough. So any threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. And that's what happens when we're addicted to performing, when we're addicted to doing, we become blind to others because we're obsessed with our own self-image. That's exactly what happened to the Pharisees. They want Jesus gone because he's questioning that whole paradigm. He's questioning that whole way of life, performancism. Those are the problems of performancism. What is the good news of Jesus? What is the good news of the Jesus way? First, you need to see who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Jesus has a slightly intricate argument. We could, scholars spend pages talking about the argument that Jesus is making here to the Pharisees. We only have a couple of minutes, but let me identify it quickly. In summary, what Jesus is doing is he's using the entire Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings, the three, the three main pillars of the Old Testament, to show that he is someone unique. He is someone ultimate. He is someone of such importance that only his opinion at the end of the day really matters. Only his opinion. So how does he do that? First, he quotes from this obscure passage in 1 Samuel 21 about David. It's an obscure text, uh, but the heart of the story is this. David is on the run from Saul. He's with a, number of his, he's with a couple of his entourage of, uh, of captains and, and officials. He's on the run from Saul. He's been anointed as king. He knows he's going to be king. Saul knows he's going to be king. And yet Saul is chasing after him to put him to death. And there comes a point in the story where David is on the run. He's fleeing. And he comes to the temple. All, both him and his men are hungry. And they have nothing to eat. They have no food. And the only food, apparently, is the bread of the presence, which was given specifically in the Old Testament for the priests to eat. And only the priests. Uh, it, was a, it was a picture of God inviting his people to a table, much like the one we have before us this morning, and yet only the priests were commanded to eat this meal. But 
in, in, a, in a turn of events, the priest gives the bread to David and his men, people who shouldn't have eaten this bread. He gives to David the bread of the presence, indicating this, that David's role as king his role as ruler, his role as monarch over the nation of Israel trumps the Sabbath law. It was more important that David, God's king, David, God's anointed one, have bread to eat in an in a, in a, in a episode of, of near starvation than it was for that bread of presence to be preserved only for the priests. I think the Pharisees are tracking with him at this point, and what they're I think what they're thinking, although it's dangerous to think what a Pharisee is thinking, I think what they're thinking is that makes sense, but it only makes sense if the person before me today making this point is greater than David. Now look at where Jesus goes next. He talks about uh, the issue of the priests working on the temple on the Sabbath day. Uh, it's, the comparison doesn't work perfectly, but Think about pastors in, in a modern-day experience. Uh, my work, um, some of you might think I only work, this might be my only work day, but I actually work several other days a week. But my work tends to build up around Sunday. As you can imagine, Sunday is one of the most important, if not the most important days in the life of the church. So uh, the other pastor and I are getting ready to preach. We're, getting, we're leading teams. We're making sure everything is structured and organized so that people can meet with Jesus. And the same was true in the Old Testament. The priests were putting on uh, intricate robes and intricate apparel that reflected their, um, their position and their vocation before God. They were, getting, they were baking bread and preparing it for the tabernacle and for the temple. They were offering sacrifices from morning until evening. They were doing a lot of work on the Sabbath. And so in some sense, they were violating the Sabbath. But because of where they were positionally in the temple, in the courts of the temple, because of their unique ministry, God allowed them to violate the Sabbath, to quote, violate the Sabbath. They worked on the Sabbath because they were positioned in God's holy place, in his presence. So, what does that have to do with anything? It has to do because Jesus says, I am the greater temple. Something has come along that has changed the course of history. A person has come who is not only greater than David, but also greater than the temple. And who is this person? Well, Jesus gets to it with his claim at the very end of verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. See, what Jesus has done so far is indicated from two places in the Old Testament, both from the law, from Numbers 28, the Torah, and from the prophets, from 1 Samuel, two places in which he is saying the Sabbath was pointing to something else. The Sabbath was pointing to a greater king. The Sabbath was pointing to a greater temple. And who is the Sabbath ultimately pointing to? He then quotes from the writings, from Daniel, from Daniel chapter 7, where he says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Who is the Son of Man? I'll make it brief. In Daniel chapter 7... There is a person who has identified as the Son of Man. And this person is a divine person. He's someone who's so unique, so powerful, so worthy, so enough, so righteous, that he has given all authority in heaven and on earth. And what Jesus is saying is, 
I'm the son of man. I'm God come in the flesh. And if that's true, then I'm the greater David. I'm the greater Messiah. I'm the greater temple. And arguably, arguably, his opinion is the only one that really matters. What this Jesus says, this God come in the flesh, his opinion, his declaration is the ultimate word. So why is the Jesus, if that's who Jesus is, why is the Jesus way better? The Jesus way is better because it gives rest to the exhausted. It gives freedom to the dehumanized. It gives absolution to the self-absorbed and the narcissistic. See, our problem, my problem, is exactly like the Pharisees. We're crippled in this cultural game of scorekeeping and comparison which blinds us to human need because we are obsessed, as T.S. Eliot says, with maintaining our own righteousness. We're obsessed with a declaration that says you're lovable, you're worthy, you're enough, you're righteous, you're guiltless. And look what Jesus says in verse 7. He declares his disciples guiltless. That's what the text says. They are guiltless. They're innocent. Why? How? Think for a moment. Jesus identifies himself as the greater temple. What was the temple? It was the place of God's holy presence. It was the end goal of the exodus. God didn't just deliver his people out of captivity in Egypt, but he brought them to a place in which they could meet with him, which they could stand in his presence before him, face to face. That was their ultimate destination. But the temple, the tabernacle, the place of God's presence was where you saw your sin most deeply. It was where you saw the costly death that was required because of your sin. Animals sacrificed, blood shed, blood sprinkled on an altar. The costly death of this obsession with ourselves, of our own self-absorption, what the Bible calls sin. The temple was where you saw the consequences of your sin. And at the exact same time, the temple was where you saw God's infinite, pure, extravagant, reckless mercy. You saw a sacrifice. You saw a substitute. You saw a creature on whom the wrath of God was placed. That's what the temple was. And Jesus says, I am the greater temple. If you move ahead in the story to Matthew 26, Jesus is on trial, the trial of his life. The charge... The charge was that Jesus had declared the temple to be null and void because he was the true temple. And what was the sentence that was carried out on Jesus? A costly death because of sin. A substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. Friends, that's the cost of our sin. That's the cost of my sin. With this obsession with my own status, with my own enoughness, with my own righteousness, But if you find yourself in Jesus, as these disciples found themselves in Jesus, if you have placed your identity in this greater temple, then you're not just declared guiltless, you're not just declared innocent, but righteous. Not just lovable, but loved eternally, infinitely, 
to the depth of your soul, Jesus knows everything about you and and loves you infinitely. See, we can get caught up in in debates over the law, over what what is Jesus saying we can and can't do, and, and should Christians be doing this or that? And I'm not saying those conversations are not important or appropriate at points, but the story is getting us to answer this question, who is this Jesus? What kind of authority does he have? What are the claims that he is making on your life, and why does any of that matter? Why does any of that in the world matter? Because he knows you to the very depths of your being. He knows you, that you're absorbed with your own self. He wants to free you from that. He wants to say, look at how much I love you. I find it interesting that Jesus is the most, he's the most righteous person in the story. He's the most whole person in the story. And yet, what does he do with his wholeness? What does he do with his righteousness? He gives it. He shares it. The world needs people like this Jesus. People who are freed from this self-obsession of their own narcissism. He needs them to be freed so that they can, with compassion, love their neighbor. And if you are resting in the gospel, if you believe in the gospel, if you're trusting in this Jesus, then you're freed from that because everything that needs to be done has been done already in him. So you can go, you can love other people, you can show compassion to a world that's broken, and you can rest in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this Jesus, the one who is the great son of David, greater than David himself, the king, the Messiah. He is at the same time the greater temple, the place where we can meet and be with you, the place where we can receive purification and righteousness and guiltlessness and stand before your throne, not in our own performance, not in what we have done or failed to do, but clothed in his righteousness. We're grateful for that. And as we move to the table this morning, Father, free us from our obsession with ourselves. Let us see Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.